Welcome to In Defense of Humanity. This is your host, Osteris Oz Miller. Today, I'm joined by world-renowned expert in intersectionality and gender science, Eliza Hawk. Eliza, please introduce yourself. That's me. I am a world expert <laughs> as I sit on the porch of the room that I'm renting, drinking a PBR. Um, we're going to fucking crush this topic, you know? I am an expert on intersectionality, and I'm ready to share all my knowledge. Excellent. Okay. So, Eliza, would you first explain to the audience what intersectionality is? So, if I'm remembering correctly, intersectionality is this term that I think was coined about 30 years ago um, by Kimberly Crenshaw. Okay. I think I think her name was Kimberly Crenshaw. Um, and it's basically how um, different portions of a person's identity, like gender, race, class, sexuality, like able-bodiedness, um, just different identities that people can hold, um, how they overlap in the equality conversation, in the modern conversation of equality. Because this, this term is something that is being, like, it's been around a while, but it's very recently resurfaced and become kind of like a foundational pillar in the modern feminist conversation, mm -hmm. which is awesome, because it is really, really important. Okay. Okay, interesting. And like obviously, since this is in defense humanity and I am mm -hmm. Osteris Miller, I do throw around a lot of words that might have zero meaning to anyone as an audience. So I do appreciate whenever my guests rein me back in so that I do not go too far. So I'm gonna um, immediately throw out a word that okay. I think of whenever I think of intersectionality. That's a metagenesis. So okay. So, so meta meaning something that mutates or something deeper, right? Like genes and then mm -hmm. genesis, which is like the beginning. So I'm thinking that intersectionality is like a new beginning of bridging gaps between um, identities. Um, correct me if I'm wrong. I like the sound of that. Yeah, that is a term that I haven't heard before. Okay. That's probably because it was, it just popped in my head and it probably doesn't exist. You just made it up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is your podcast. You can do what you want. Uh, you're very right. Hey, we're <laughs> going to have her on more. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, um, so, you know, I'm pretty, I like to think of myself as a philosopher, right? Clearly, huh? other people might not, but I'm not too up huh? on the intersectionality, gender, gender um, sciences and whatnot. Um, will you please describe to us the differences between sexuality sex gender cisgender sections every everything that could possibly be confusing like transgender transsexual anything oh like that mm -hmm. i can do my best okay um, so there's like this big sex and gender um like conversation that is really prevalent in academia now um, because, you know, we're modernizing, mm -hmm. we're trying to be hip, it's awesome, um, but sex is generally defined um, as a more, like, scientific bodily state, um, and then gender is described as something performative, and I think that we're, mm. we're, we're moving toward, like, a time now where we're kind of disregarding sex in a way that we're, we're trying to embrace the idea that everything is performative, mm -hmm. um, that everything is uh, conceptual and personal and cultural, which is super fun, um, but it is really complicated. 
Okay. Okay. And I was actually having an interesting conversation yesterday with uh, one of my friends here in New Mexico. If anyone's wondering why the sound uh, is a bit different from normal on our podcast, that's because Eliza is 1,500 miles away from me in Atlanta, Georgia, on uh, FaceTime audio, running through a few different linking systems to my audio recorder from a MacBook. So it, it probably sounds a bit choppy, but we're doing the best we can. We are technologically advanced here. We are, we are something. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, so anyways, I was having this conversation about performance and my friend, he was telling me about um, he thinks people are all playing a game and some people want to include you in their game. But first, they want to try to understand what game you're playing. And he was describing, right? This is how I, it reminds me of uh, Godfrey Leibniz, Leibniz and uh, Isaac Newton, how they both came to the conclusion for calculus. Um, separate from each other. So my friend was basically describing um, front stage, backstage in communication theory uh, with Goffman, right? But he was doing it. He was saying we have a choice in the game. I'm more inclined to um, go to the school of thought of Harold Garfinkel, who says we have a duty to perform this game. And we sometimes even enact this face work as in Goffman's words, whenever we're in private, we can't even be who we are to the core by ourselves because in order to, to redux, right. In order to change the very persona that we like Jung would say in public, we have to be something similar to that persona in private. Hmm. So like practically, what would be the difference between what your friend was talking about and what you're talking about, like in day-to-day -day life? Like if in I saw day -to -day someone- day-to-day life, it, um, yes, please finish. No, just like in day-to-day -day life, yeah. Like what would, what would be the difference that I could perceive? So I think uh, to say others are playing a game is dangerous because, um, so we both know the modern conception of nihilism is that mm -hmm. people think, oh, nothing matters, so I just do what I want. But this is not at all what Nietzsche would have wanted. Nietzsche was a good man. Um, well, from his readings. I don't know Nietzsche the, personally. But Nietzsche was a, um, a person who believed in humanity. So because mm -hmm. there's nothing after the, uh, the life, right? We must have the love of our fate itself. Amor fati. Like we must love the life we're living because it is the life we're living. And we have no guarantee of an afterlife. Whenever we say that there's a game, that means there are strings being pulled around us and it's our duty or it's our job as players in this game in order to construct uh, a narrative, a grand uh, schema, right? Like, like in the game of life, literally the game of life is based on the game in this concept. So we have a... a uh, um, a personal obligation in order to win the game of life, right? To achieve wealth, to achieve everything. I personally feel this is dangerous, right? And because no one cares what I personally feel, probably, um, I think we have a duty, right? We don't have a personal obligation. We have a moral obligation to not regard life as a game, but to regard life as a stage 
on which we all exist. We are not actors. We are the people who remove the mask after acting. That's who we should be. However, we put the mask on. We do face work, as Goffman would say, in public. And we do it so well that we even do it to ourselves. So whenever we look in the mirror, we cannot even recognize ourselves as who we were before we attempted the face work. Hmm. I feel like I can't quite perceive a difference in those two things that you're talking about. Um, between which one? Um, like you said, to you, there's a big difference in being an actor on a stage and uh-huh. having a duty to, uh, like having a duty. It kind of sounds like the same thing to me. Okay. Okay. So, so um, here, this is where Goffman and Garfinkel differ. So Goffman yeah. says we have a choice in being in the front stage. And then being in the backstage, we are our private selves. Garfinkel says the duty, right? We cannot reconcile not um, performing, which is why we have the, the clinicality, like the, the, the clinical psychology movement that Michel Foucault also describes. This is why whenever people are outliers, whenever they act different, they're taken and they're thrown into or used to be into an asylum or into a home because they don't fit the status quo they either recognize or they do not care about the, the the game, so to speak, right? They disregard what society feels is a duty as cogs in this capitalist machine, and they're thrown away because they disrupt uh, the, the flow of um, the, the movement of society. So that is what Garfinkel would say. He says we have a duty lest we be thrown out of society. We become abjects of society. And that's what I feel this new movement of intersectionality seeks to dispose of, which would be brilliant if we could do something such as this. Okay. I think I kind of get where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. But what do you, what do you think? What do you think? is pretty new to me so mm-hmm. i'm still focusing on wrapping my head around it i don't know mm. i am i'll be honest with you i am having trouble connecting the the stage thing to intersectionality okay okay um so so we have the so we've already described the stage by goffman right yeah if we will will you please go through the formatting for intersectionality step by step how we achieve um, the thoughts of intersectionality. And I'll do my best to connect them through um, one of the theories. Like, even if we have to go to Franz Fanon, who talks about um, uh, sexuality reassigning in Antian culture, in Caribbean culture. When you say, how do we, like, come to intersection just like practical ways mm-hmm. of how we reach intersectionality mm-hmm. so i think like um intersectionality kind of accompanies this modern mindset that we're moving toward okay. um, and because we've finally realized like Simone de Beauvoir said so long ago that not one thing makes a woman mm-hmm. like there are so many unique experiences that are completely unique to each type of woman um, okay different women have different needs and struggles and if we focus on like 
straight, white, able-bodied women. Um, many interests like get ignored, but say we focus on the most heavily marginalized in our society. So like a, uh, a queer, trans, disabled black woman. Um, every community in between there is accounted for and is uplifted and upheld. So intersectionality is like changing our mindset to one of very, very intentional and like almost like violent, uncomfortable inclusion, which is hard and it's really like research heavy and it is really tedious, but it's so important. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, this, this clears up some things for me as well. Yeah. Um, so I, I remember talking to a, um, an event planner, right? This may sound a bit off topic, but I'll connect it. And she okay. was saying the thing that she does is that she contacts everyone who's going to be at the event and she finds the person with the most severe allergies. And if she cooks for them, everyone else in the entire place can eat. So she need not worry about a menu. Yeah, 100%. I got you. Yeah. Just mm -hmm. to Just to sort of make it a little bit more digestible yeah the absolutely the audience. yeah that's definitely a, a good example yeah. of intersectionality <laughs> indeed but i don't want to um diminish the importance of intersectionality oh, yeah. and absolutely. i i also um realize that today we have this um movement of uh we're not going to say which political party but people who refer to people who care about intersectionality as sjw's or um, social justice warriors, and they say, oh, these people will complain about anything. Yeah. And it's easy enough whenever you are a member of the majority. You are wealthy, and you need not care about anything else um, mm -hmm. except how much money is flowing through your accounts at once Yeah. and how you can make the most money off of someone. And it's easy to say that because you are disjointed from society itself. You are literally on mount high but if atlas shrugged right ayn rand is not a philosopher i've talked to several philosophers who say that um mm -hmm. but ayn rand did give a great um analogy if atlas shrugged right if the government gave up how would society repair itself would pure capitalism actually function well and the hypothesis is that it would function well for a few and then a lot would be in worse subsets of poverty than ever have been imagined. Mm -hmm. And so that is why we must not um, go to the whims of the majority. Yeah, and I've had a lot of conversations that are really interesting lately, like with my very progressive friends that are struggling with um, the like modern attitude of quote-unquote like oversensitivity. Mm -hmm. And like almost over inclusion. Absolutely. And I, my, I have a lot of progressive friends that are really struggling with it and feeling very strongly that this attitude is like setting us back and alienating a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And like, I, I don't think I, I, I mean, I don't agree. I'm pretty sure I don't agree. I haven't been convinced otherwise yet, but it is like a compelling argument because there's so many people that as soon as you, I don't know, like get forceful about inclusion, people shut down and get angry and mm -hmm. call you a snowflake, you know? Absolutely. And I I remember this talk. Um it was on another podcast with a um a scientist, uh, and she said that medicine 
and uh, like basically most industries use males as an analog, even seat belts, uh, which were perfected by Volvo and then given to other manufacturers, that they haven't been fully adapted in well over 30 years to fit women. Hmm. Showed that even the medical industry, right? Whenever, uh, so if you feel pain in your left arm or your right arm, it's said that you're probably having a heart attack. However, um, this is like 90% of males. However, these reports disregard the fact that sometimes women feel um, different uh, symptoms of a heart attack without feeling that. So they'll be like, oh, my chest just hurts. I need to get over it. And then they die of heart attacks because they know um, doctors readily uh, give this information to women that, oh, you might feel different symptoms whenever you're having a heart attack beyond chest pain, beyond the pain in the arm. Hmm, that's interesting. And I hadn't heard that. Yes. Yeah. So basically using males as the analog because males were, um, I don't remember the reason, but males were more likely to be analogs because cadavers donated to scientists during the um, age of symposium hospitals where there would be students surrounding a cadaver or open surgeries with a lot of people surrounding the, the patient were always male because you can't have a woman um, in these times revealed naked yeah. during the surgery or during an examination. So almost all, um, all medicine and all things that use males as an analog and do not even conceive the possibility, yeah. white males at, at yeah. that. So they don't even consider the possibility that some of these medicines might not work on women, different doses uh, that account for body weight, but not for different levels of hormones, um, different huh? ethnicities who might have different like glycogen bonds or different protein amounts. Um, like still, still, like standard humans, but slightly different variations for family and ethnicity that could make the difference between life or death. Yeah, totally. Hmm. That's no good. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. So I was thinking if we achieve this world of intersectionality, does this mean we'll become just some amalgam of uh, just bodies, like all light brown in complexion, all mixed, all gender nay um just moving around or do we specify everything for each individual mm -hmm. i mean i think it would it would make intersectionality a lot easier if we just formed this one amalgamation of race but that's not going to happen for a long time Indeed. and until we get to that point shit's going to be tedious man like we gotta worry about so many different types of people Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's it's making people really angry right now that we can't just focus on like one baseline identity. Mm -hmm. And it's like um that's where the, the strategic essentialism conversation kinda comes in too and why I have a problem with strategic essentialism. Mm -hmm. Especially nowadays. Like I don't remember when strategic essentialism came about and it may have worked better in the time that it came about, um, but it definitely doesn't work now. And Absolutely. And that's a big problem that people are seeing at women's marches, why there's like counter protests that are mm. still progressive, right? Like people of color showing up at women's marches and being like, why aren't you at the Black Lives Matter protest? Why are there only white women here? Absolutely. And why are there only issues, issues that are facing white women? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, real quick, before we even dive into this, will you please explain uh, strategic essentialism? I can. Um, so I don't remember who coined it. Okay. Um, but it's it's the basic premise that because women are so different, mm-hmm. um, it's hard. So in in the pursuit of getting anything done, we have to unify under a common like a common goal or a common identity, even if only for a little while to get your voices heard, which like is good in theory. It's a good like organizational tactic, but when it comes down to it, there's so many interests that are going to get neglected. Absolutely. And the, the voice of the easy majority. So white women is the only one that's really going to get heard or that's going to get changed, you know? Mm -hmm. And strategic essentialism is something that, was interesting when we talked about it in my feminist philosophies class because it it's something that I feel like I remember being the only one opposed to um, because in in theory it sounds like it sounds good because as the name says it's strategic so you're not doing it for very long you're just doing it long enough to get a policy in place or to get a rally together um, but I do think it is dangerous because it forms a habit and it forms a norm and it contributes to this whole uh, construction of one baseline identity that we're trying so hard to break out of right now. Okay, I feel you. And because you said the key word construction and identity, I have no choice mm-hmm. but to dive in to the construction of the zone of being in which okay. society uh, recapitulates and marginalizes people. Mm, okay. So we have. Ah, now I get to say it. Franz Fanon. I feel like I mention him every every episode. I need to stop. But I'm I'm pretty on. sure every even even casual conversations that we've had, I'm pretty sure his name has come up every time. Indeed. I, I should stop. Okay. Homie Baba. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, don't stop this episode. Maybe stop next episode. You're right, you're right. Okay. Probably relevant. So yeah. we have a um so basically Franz Fanon focuses on uh, the construction of being in um, oppressed peoples, uh, so specifically Algeria and the Caribbean, but also this works for um, everywhere. Um, so in order to prove that one is um, as good as the other, so w- wait, 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 that the other, right, the other, the subaltern person yeah. is attempting mm-hmm. To prove also subalternity, will you explain that to the audience? Um, I think you might be able to better explain it than me. Um, But do you want to try? Yeah, might as well. Um, So the subaltern represent a uh, a pariah of people. These people, so it it comes two words, two roots. We have altern, which comes from alternate, meaning other. So you have the other in society. This would be the black people in America in the 60s. Some would argue um, even today. And you have the subaltern, which are those below the other. So the other has the ability to speak. Maybe they're not listened to that much, but they have enough power to where they could fight back civil rights movement. However, the subaltern in America would be like a Hopi person, an indigenous person, um, to North America. An um, animal. 
Yeah, yeah. And animals, animals as well. I don't like to directly compare them in the same sentence. Um, indigenous oh, yeah, populations yeah, yeah. to because then we have uh, speciesism that comes by and like, oh, you compare people to animals. Uh, but mm -hmm. yeah, animals are also included in subalternity because they are unable to be heard by humans, even if humans wanted to listen. At this point, we cannot interpret anything animals say unless they're like higher primates. I didn't even like using the term higher primate, but I'm getting on a tangent. Um, anyways, <laughs> so the subaltern are people who are considered below the altern, below the other, and they cannot speak. Like Gayatri Spivak has a, um, a brilliant set of papers on this, if you would like um, to read. So she basically says that the subaltern, she, she, she poses the question, can the subaltern speak? The conclusion is the subaltern can speak. However, they will not be heard, which is a huge difference between the other speaking and not being listened to because I could still hear them. However, the subaltern speak. And no one hears nor listens. Indeed. Yeah, absolutely. Indeed. Because like such a such a big focus on the plight of the other is being able to be an effective platform as an ally. And for the subaltern, there's like not really a concrete way to be a platform. Absolutely. And there is, but not really, right? Mm. Yeah, for certain, for certain. Um, yeah, there's no platform for the subaltern. And whenever we create a platform for a subaltern to, to amplify their voice, we're really just using them as um, a sort of a, a, a token, not a token, but something similar to achieve uh, equity for other groups. We're, we're using them as, I don't know, maybe you could best describe this. Hmm. I don't know, but I, th I think I think we're using them as a tool more to amplify our own mm -hmm. ideas of mm -hmm. what they need. Yes, yes, because that's the thing, right? Even whenever uh, we see this all the time in films, right? Whenever or in real life, whenever you're somewhere, and then I I, I encountered this very recently. Um, I was with a group of other um, minorities, obviously. And then some guys were like saying some things and I was like, yeah. And then I made like a, a sort of, you know, a racist joke, didn't include any racial slurs at all. And then um, a young woman was standing beside me. We'll say that she was a part of the majority. And she said, oh, that's racist. And, I, and then we all looked at her and we're like, oh, my. Oh, oh, this is interesting. <laughs> and it's like, um, it's like we had to explain to her that it's not okay for anyone to say it, but if anyone is going to say it, at least it should be the people who are being oppressed. And yeah. it's not wise for someone who is a member of the group that typically is the oppressor to tell us that we're using oppressive language because it only makes them look like they're controlling us even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I got you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like whenever um, people speak on behalf of indigenous peoples and they're like, they want freedom. They want everything. So we have the situation in Ihimato in the Fanua 
in uh, New Zealand, Aotearoa, where we have the Fanua, which is being developed by or planning on being developed by privateers in the New Zealand government. And uh, people are speaking out, you know, doing the standard, uh, um, doing the standard sharing on social media, you know, the slacktivism. Um, and no one's donating money or going to Fanua. So these are people who are uh, giving a platform for the Fanua, but they're sharing. Other people are going to share, but no one actually helps because sharing it around doesn't actually fix a problem. It just lets everyone see yeah. it and say, oh, I'll share it instead of doing something. Someone else will do it. But if everyone does that, then no one fixes it. Yeah, and the only practical, tangible purpose ends up being self-gratification for Indeed. the majority that is sharing. Yeah. Because it feels good, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what Peter Singer writes a paper about, this, or he wrote a paper about this. I believe it's called Famine and Affluence. Um, mm, I haven't read it. Yeah, it's called Famine and Affluence by Peter Singer. So basically, he he talks about like famine, affluence, and morality. That's what it's called. It's a book. Um, and basically it's like whenever they say 50 cents a day will help this poor child, uh, eat for one day. And it's like, oh, cool. I'll donate 50 cents. But then you have the little thermometer that shows you how much is being donated. And whenever it gets near the top, people are like, oh, everyone's already donated. I can just donate a little bit because clearly everyone else is donating as well. But if everyone did that, then eventually people would be donating one cent. And then whenever it gets to like the last thousand dollars out of a million, no one donates. Yeah. Because they assume uh, someone else will take care of it. The Angelina or the Brad Pitt will take care of it. So it's like almost like the bystander effect. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, we can reconnect it back to intersectionality because we have a lot of bystanders or people who are working against the movement. And as we know in defense humanity, though I go on tangents, I never forget my base point. Um, <laughs> good, good, good. Regardless of how far I go out, uh -huh. uh, mm -hmm. I will never get lost. So tell me more about bystanders within intersectionality then. Okay. So we have, um, clearly, we have people who are like, ah, oh, why are you concerned with these people whenever there are only four of them, right? Let's, let's just use four out of like a hundred as an example oh mm -hmm. you have four transgender black women who are disabled why care about them right the utilitarian argument whenever there are 50 soldiers that are disabled and they they need uh, <laughs> subsidies at the va and nobody's paying for it but don't increase my taxes but they need help because i love the soldiers but don't take my taxes yeah these types of people who who throw things, right, who don't gaslight, but but convince themselves that what they're saying is of importance. These people um, make me feel interested. Mm -hmm. they, they, so would you would you mm -hmm. would you equate being a bystander within sexuality? thinking that they're well-intentioned in pursuit of like equality for the marginalized or do you think that they know that they're disregarding the marginalized i think sometimes i think they think that the marginalized people 
aren't really in existence. They're just looking for attention. But mm -hmm. in my opinion, I don't think anyone would go through a gender confirmation surgery for attention. That seems like a lot of money, a lot of pain, yeah, a lot of like turmoil in order to garner attention that's not even yeah. that big anymore. Mm -hmm. So I think yeah. Yeah. bystanders sometimes, because there's action through inaction, right? Every choice <laughs> we make is a decision. and. And you obviously have a, a fallacy, right? The, the false dilemma that there are only two choices, which is not true. There, there are nearly an infinite number of choices. If someone says kill someone or like the trolley problem, right? Kill someone or don't move. Um, if you move the lever, you kill one person. If you don't move the lever, you kill five people. And then as you're saying, so what's your choice? You could commit suicide and then you don't know what happens. Yeah. So that's a choice. No one's, most people aren't going to make that choice, but you could be assured that you won't be at fault after you commit suicide. Mm -hmm. But no yeah. one thinks of this. Um, no I was going to say, I heard about that solution to the trolley problem. <laughs> you have? But I, I've not heard about oh, suicide. Yeah, I just thought of it. Uh, because whenever you realize that the world's not, filled with dilemmas that there are numerous choices you think of things probably not the best choices but choices nonetheless yeah i think that should be added to the trolley problem <laughs> i don't know maybe we could talk to jonathan dancy he's the guy who invented moral particularism he's like one of the newest moral philosophers hmm. and he he always says as a moral philosopher it's not my duty to tell people what's right and wrong which I always found hilarious because indeed a moral philosopher's job is to tell people, well, if you're a deontologist, what's, um, what is dutiful or what's not if you're utilitarian, what's the most amount of good, what's the least amount of good. But as like a, um, if you follow Kierkegaardian morality with a night of double, um, of infinite resignation, right. Or the, um, double movement, then you can tell people what's right and wrong. And it's what's given to us through God. Uh, but that's, that's going a bit too far. So let's rein it back in. Cool, cool. So let's, <laughs> let's, let's talk about hmm, Lusa Rigore. Lusa Rigore. You've read Lusa Rigore, okay. yes? I have read Lusa Rigore. Okay, perfect. Now here's where intersectionality gets difficult. So oftentimes people complain about intersectionality um, in the u.s saying that other places don't do that that's not completely true it's just a little bit more difficult so french is a gendered language um masculine feminine mm -hmm. and after reading lucer rigore after watching lucer rigore's um interviews and whatnot i find it extremely difficult that lucer rigore as a reflexive feminist would be open to intersectionality in the sense of language. Um, okay. I don't think Lucy Rigore is too concerned with terminology as people who are proponents of intersectionality usually are. Right? Not always, but usually. So to say they, them, uh, he, her, he, him, uh, she, her is completely irrelevant to Lucy Rigore because she says, in French, you have two options. In English, you have three options, masculine, feminine, neuter. 
However, those options are completely removed from articles after the Norman Conquest and the uh, subsidization of English language into a more um, analytical language. So we still have these choices in English. Um, yeah. Just a bit more difficult. Um, I remember okay. I remember having a conversation um, in my feminist philosophies class with Dr. Massacott mm-hmm. that there was speculation, or we, we speculated through the class, that Lucy Rigore, if she were in the conversation right now, like if we could like hear a hot take from young Lucy Rigore right now mm-hmm. on the transgender plight, that she wouldn't be an ally necessarily. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because to Lusa Rigore, the, the, the mind, right? Lusa Rigore is in sort of outside of the existential movement. So in no doubt, right, uh, Simone de Beauvoir, um, Jean-Paul Sartre, even Franz Fanon with his sort of, which appears to be homophobic satire, which is which he uses in black skin, um, white mask to sort of gain attention for his works because people see homosexual and they lock in and keep reading. Um, even I feel existentialist would be more allied because they're saying it doesn't matter. Live your life the way you want. Your mind is apart from the flesh because the flesh decays and, and your mind has nowhere to go after. So live the way you wish to live as long as it doesn't affect anyone else. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, right. And we can obviously, um, if we gain enough money, if people want to donate to my Patreon, we could call <laughs> Lusa Rigore because I'm pretty sure she's very expensive to talk to. Um, Probably. I would assume so. And, uh, well, it'd be kind of difficult. I don't know if Lusa Rigore speaks English, but. I mean, you just translate. You, I'll, okay, so you translate in English and I'll, we can dub over my voice over her voice. Okay. Yeah, I guess we yeah. could do that. It'll be. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So if we can gain enough money, probably about ten thousand, um, we could hit up Lucy Rigore. We might even be able to fly her uh, to America, and then get her input on intersectionality. And I think we will be very surprised by what she says. Yeah, I would be very interested to hear. Like, I would be interested to hear that conversation. So okay. hey, hit up the Patreon. <laughs> Indeed, hit up mm-hmm. the Patreon. Okay, so let's jump. So you've done a lot of research on Simone de Beauvoir. Um, I have. Cool. Tell us about it. Um. Oh boy. I guess the best place to start with Simone de Beauvoir is like uh, her research on the other, because that's what I've mm-hmm. I'm really mm-hmm. interested myself in. Um, and her idea. Um, oh fuck! I'm like drawing a blank. Oh my gosh! How long have I been out of academia? Three months brain dead yeah it's almost Um, been four months i know she's most well i mentioned earlier um that one is not born a woman one becomes a woman and that there are many different uh identities and experiences and needs and subcategories and factions of the general word woman and that's how it intertwines with intersectionality obviously Mm -hmm. um but she's got this concept of the other that you already touched on. Mm-hmm. The other is of intersectionality and because there are so many obvious factions within the other. It's kind of 
the other is just a really good term. <laughs> mm. It is. It talk is. About it. Yeah. And I feel like the focus of the other is generally on more severely marginalized, which is, is the whole point of intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. Like we have, um, even whenever we're talking about the, the, the performance, right? If we jump back to dutiful performance with mm-hmm. Harold Duarfinkel, he did like a long ethnomethodology of this woman named Agnes who had a boyfriend, had a job, lived her life in the 50s, right? Um, a woman uh, in every mm-hmm. right. However, revealed to Garfinkel, obviously, before he started doing this ethnomethodology, was that Agnes was born a male. Mm-hmm. And no one knew, even in the 50s, right? Whenever uh, it was very difficult to move, to have any social mobility as a transgender woman, no one knew. Her boyfriend didn't know. Wow. And yeah, so basically, Garfinkel just went through this sociological research about transgender people and um to understand like the 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 locus um right the location of being for these people and how they exist in a larger history of society and it was it was brilliant it was it was very brilliant i i must say i do recommend the, the case study of agnes torres to anyone who wants to read it um i think so I think Agnes was in the 50s, but I think Garfinkel started his research in like the 60s or the 70s, something like that. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it was, there's some good research. Mm. I do like the sound of that. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to like form a thought right now, but I can't quite get it together. It's all good. We're not editing this podcast, so keep it going. Oh no! All right. I'll I'll once I once I get it formed, I'll I'll jump back into it. Mm-hmm. I think it I think it is trying to be a devil's advocate argument. Okay. But I can't I okay. can't quite get it together. <laughs> That's all good. Um, so do you remember what we were actually talking about? Um earlier before we mentioned intersectionality like in the messages that we were conveying to each other to decide what we were talking about oh i don't think so okay that's do you of course i always do (laughs) but let's (laughs) let's jump in okay so we have um have you ever heard of kimberly crenshaw i have you have okay well you Will you tell us about Kimberly Crenshaw? Well, so all I know about Kimberly Crenshaw is that she is a black woman mm-hmm. and she coined the term intersectionality. Of course. Um, and she, she's an academic. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's all I got, I think. I think that that's all I know about her history. Yeah, yeah. So basically, you, you got everything. She, well, not everything, but you got all the big points. Um, oh, yeah. She, she's like a scholar of critical race theory. She's, in, she's a lawyer. And then she focuses in civil rights, human rights. And yeah, she coined the term intersectionality. Uh, she deals with social identities 
ethnicity, sexuality, um, economic background. She, she's brilliant. She went to mm-hmm. Cornell, Harvard, uh, University wow. of Wisconsin. It sounds like I'm reading our Wikipedia page, but I wrote notes earlier um, <laughs> from her Wikipedia page. Gotcha. <laughs> so all of this could be a lie, but I don't think it's so. Um, I trust it. Yeah, I've read some of her works. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. She she helped write the um, Constitution of South Africa for the Equality Clauses. She she was actually there, like, in in spirit, I guess. Maybe there wow. physically. Yeah. Sounds like a like a big deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed. So she's like, she's a pretty powerful woman. Sounds like it. I mean, intersectionality is a powerful concept. Like, I, it, it's a word that I hadn't really heard before the past few years. Mm -hmm. And now I hear it. Everywhere? Yeah. In every conversation about feminism that I have, I think the word intersectionality pops up. It's a really, really important buzzword in modern feminist conversation. Because like in, in our current climate, you know, people are trying to be woke. You know, and people are trying to realize that we we can't rely on one definition for anything. Yeah, yeah. If you the practical reason of people will get angry at you, so you need to learn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people get angry, and then our conversations start to fall apart, and we have a bit of discursive dissimulation. Yeah. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. that's yeah. not a real term either. So. I mean, it is it is uh, for you. Uh, it's true. I should probably explain it. Um, so discursive dissimulation is literally just a combination of two words that I thought of one day. Uh, if you ever look, this is evident in society. There are probably other terms for it. So we have this uh, force, this timing force in rhetoric. It's called Kairos. Eliza knows <laughs> all about this. I've talked about Kairos for well over two years. Um, mm-hmm. I probably mention it in every single paper I've ever written. Um, Pretty much. So, yeah. Uh, so, Kairos is basically rhetorical timing. So, we have Kronos, which is timing to the Greeks, like the time on a clock. Then we have Kairos, which is, as I've said five times already, rhetorical timing. Um, and it's basically the pauses and the steps <laughs> in between language, in between speech. So, you know immediately if a conversation is awkward because of the timing and like the, the fricative stops in between words, how you guys stumble over each other's words. And it is nearly impossible to have a conversation, right? Between more than two people, like between one-on-one, it's nearly impossible because literally converse, right? Converse is con, which means with in Latin and versare, which means to flip or to to like go around right so literally the conversation is throwing things back and forth at each other to arrive to a similar um to to something to something different from what you had before you started the the conversation and with discursive dissimulation we have discourse right which is the same thing d meaning or die meaning to and course, like intercourse, which is a similar word um, before the modern interpretation, which is literally course, 
which is like engaging in speech again like we have the term for course which is a class so you're literally speaking with others mm-hmm. and then we have this which could either be taken as like changing up or uh like disregard is something we're moving from so we're literally um in a process of breaking down and building like dr dickman would say with uh thoughts you're literally separating and combining subject and predicate Mm-hmm. Um, and that is the point of conversation to build. It's not to speak at someone, it's to speak with someone. Not to mm-hmm. talk to someone, but to talk with someone. And at discursive dissimulation, that's the point at which Kairos and any other factor that connects your speech starts to separate, right? Dissemble, disassemble. And then this happens at long tables whenever you want to hang out with all of your friends and speak and then if you step back you hear that there are actually multiple conversations happening and then you're just looking at each other to prove to each other that you're still engaged with the other but you're truly not yeah i think in almost like an abstract way we can connect like the the difficulty of intersectionality Mm -hmm. with the nature of discourse right with this like you can only have a conversation between two people mm-hmm. um, that conversation as it sort of naturally occurs is we focus on one thing and then we broaden, like you said, like conversation builds, discourse builds. Mm-hmm. We, we pinpoint one thing and then we broaden, but with intersectionality, the point is to start really, really wide mm-hmm. and specific and then narrow. Absolutely. Which that, is hard. I feel like <laughs> that's what in defense humanity is. We say we have a term, it's it, it sort of looks like a, a dreidel so we start at the top and then we go extremely wide and then we hone it back near the end of the episode maybe eight hours later but eventually we get back to the point yeah 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 so like if anyone wants to look up discursive dissimulation i've not yet finished that paper so please don't even waste your time um, just just give your boy a call yeah, if you want to call me, my number is not going to be set on this episode. <laughs> but <laughs> if you would like to email me, um, you can email me at Osteris. Uh, wait, wait, that's not my email at all. Wait, info at Osteris.tech. Wow. You have an info email and a dot tech. What does dot tech even mean? Technology. All right. Yeah, because I'm, I'm out here. In defense of humanity, we're tech nerds. I got you. I got you. Indeed. So people are probably listening, and then this is the point of the conversation. Whenever like we're fifty minutes in the conversation, so this is the point at which we're usually, um, you know, for lack of a better word, dissembling our discourse. So we will typically, from this point, tell all the audience, "Hey, if you would like to leave." The conversation about intersectionality is waning down and we're about to start talking about like other things. But if you would like to stick around, this is also in defense of humanity. I mean, I'm still here. Eliza's still here. We're just right. basically just going to be talking about random stuff now. Mm. Okay. okay. So gotcha. the outro plays. 